just the reset you need to own the day. Irish Spring. When the spring hits you, you're ready. Pick up Irish Spring at your local retailer today. This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. Remember Francis Tiafo, the brother who made it to the U.S. Open semifinals in November? Tiafo is now ranked among the top 10 male tennis players in the world. The 25-year-old Tiafo reached the top 10 for the first time in his young career. Tiafo climbed to 10th after winning the Stuttgart Open in Germany over the weekend. He's only the third African-American to be ranked in the top 10. The distinguished list includes the legendary Arthur Ashe and James Blake. Tiafo is one of only two American men currently ranked in the top 10. Taylor Fritz is eighth. Venus Williams received a wildcard invitation to play in this year's Wimbledon. This would be Venus's 24th Wimbledon appearance. She's won the title five times. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. More news, opinions, and conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. It's our anniversary. Every weekday during the month of June, we're giving away gear from the KBLA.store to say thank you for your support of KBLA Talk 1580 as we celebrate our second anniversary. Each weekday, a different host will be giving away fresh merch to one lucky caller. All you have to do is keep it locked to KBLA Talk 1580 throughout the day, and our host will tell you when to dial in and when. It's our way of showing appreciation to you for helping make KBLA Talk 1580 the most trusted, credible, and reliable source of information for listeners just like you. Here's hoping you'll be one of our lucky winners. But you can always head over to the KBLA.store anytime for the best in KBLA Talk 1580 gear for yourself and great gift ideas. Now, celebrating two years of being your go-to for KBLA Talk 1580, and we've got your black. Sometime in the next 10 days, the Supreme Court is expected to tightly restrict or ban race-based affirmative action in college admissions. The ruling could come as soon as tomorrow or as late as Friday, June 30th, before the justices leave for their summer break. Hunter Biden's agreement on Tuesday to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax crimes capped a five-year investigation without allegations of wrongdoing by the president or presumably prison time for his youngest son. But on the other hand, it put Hunter once again in the crosshairs of Mr. Biden's adversaries who instantly complained that the wayward son got off too easy. A federal judge in Arkansas on Tuesday struck down the state's law forbidding medical treatments for children and teenagers seeking gender transitions, blocking what had been the first in a wave of such measures championed by conservative lawmakers across the country. The decision was hailed as a significant victory for the LGBTQ community, delivering a dose of certainty for transgender youth in Arkansas who had worried for nearly two years about losing access to puberty blockers and hormones. The New York state legislator gave final approval yesterday to legislation that provides legal protection for New York doctors to prescribe and send abortion pills to patients in states that have outlawed abortion. The measure, along with similar new laws in several states controlled by Democrats, could significantly expand medication abortion access by allowing more patients in states that restrict abortion to end pregnancies at home without traveling to states where abortion is legal. 
Well, the math and reading performance of 13-year-olds in the United States has hit the lowest level in decades, according to test scores released today from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the gold standard federal exam. The last time math performance was this low for 13-year-olds was in 1990. Representative Lawrence Boebert introduced articles of impeachment yesterday against President Joe Biden. Well, surprise, surprise. These articles will force a House floor vote in the coming days. The articles offered by Boebert, who's a Republican congresswoman from Colorado, focuses on Biden's handling of immigration and the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, the articles were introduced a day after the plea agreement for Hunter Biden was entered into over misdemeanor tax offenses and a felony firearm crime. And lastly, a trio of progressive prosecutors in large uh, northern Virginia counties swept their Democratic primaries yesterday. Now, this is a vote of confidence from Democrats on their performance amid a national debate over what policies strike the right balance on public safety and criminal justice reform. The three wins on Tuesday represent another step forward for the progressive prosecutor movement, which has seen dozens of new district attorneys elected in America's biggest counties over the past decade. Bravo to those prosecutors. You are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. Uh, in this hour, I have two of the brightest contributors joining me, Professor Niambi Carter, who's a professor at the University of Maryland, and Jamar Brown is here. He's a former executive director of the Texas Democratic Party, and he is currently a Democratic strategist. And in hour two, we go behind the headlines and dig deeper into those stories that everyone is talking about. And today, that story is the scathing, scathing report from the Department of Justice regarding the Minneapolis Police Department. Now, if you will recall, after George Floyd was murdered literally before our very eyes in May of 2020, activists amped up their request to the Department of Justice to investigate the Minneapolis Police Department beyond its investigation of Derek Chauvin and the other three officers responsible for George Floyd's murder. This investigation occurred. Uh, the pleas of the activists were heard. And over two years, the Justice Department went into Minneapolis and investigated its entire police department, its policies, its procedures, uh, the actions taken by the officers, and what that report found and what it reveals is just unnerving. It's shocking. It's jaw-dropping. Uh, it's beyond the bad that we might have expected. So in hour two, we're going to go deep on what the Minneapolis Police Department has been doing, uh, particularly as it relates to black folks, as it relates to Native Americans. We're going to talk to uh, one of the activists that has been really intimately involved in trying to bring forth reform in the Minneapolis Police Department. Wow, we're going to also talk about some of the other police departments that are under similar investigation by the Department of Justice. But before I bring on my guests, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. We are learning more and more details every day about the insidious nature of relationships between our Supreme Court justices and a handful of GOP billionaire donors. And what we are learning 
is just ugly. And this isn't just about Clarence Thomas and his luxury yacht trips with Harlan Crow. Thanks to the outstanding journalists over at ProPublica, we now know that Justice Samuel Alito, the author of the Dobbs decision, the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, we know that Alito has his own Republican sugar daddy. In this explosive article yesterday in ProPublica, the journalists detail the uh, relationship that Alito has with a billionaire hedge fund manager by the name of Paul Singer. Now, this relationship includes Paul Singer financing a trip for Alito to an Alaskan fishing resort. And get this, guess how he got there? He got there on Paul Singer's private jet, a trip that would cost you or me or anyone else trying to charter a private jet over $100,000. Now, the article just goes on to uh, talk about how uh, this conservative judicial activist by the name of Leonard Leo organized this trip. Now, Singer flew Alito to this lodge, to this fishing lodge, and there at the lodge is Leonard Leo. Now, Leonard Leo happens to be the head of the Federalist Society, and Leonard Leo also happened to be the person that helped Samuel Alito get confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Leonard Leo has been involved with many conservative judges uh, as the head of the Federalist Society. His job is to cultivate a bench of super and some would call extremely conservative justices uh, and judges to make sure they get appointed to the federal court system. So here you have Leonard Leo arranging this $100,000 plus trip for Alito to go hang out with his sugar daddy, Paul Singer, uh, in Alaska. This just reeks of corruption. Now, the rules have always been that judges are prohibited from accepting gifts from anyone with business before the court. Now, you probably won't be shocked to know that Paul Singer has had 10 matters before the U.S. Supreme Court, 10 matters that he had an interest in that came before this court that, guess what, Justice Alito did not recuse himself from hearing those matters and issuing rulings on those matters. I don't know how long our Supreme Court can last with this drip, 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 and this, you know, these constant revelations of the ties between justices and these Republican donors. We have been calling, many of us in the Democratic Party have been calling on the Dems to take action to reform the court, uh, not just because the, the Republicans stole seats that belong to the Democrats on the court, but because the court refuses to police itself. It refuses to uh, prohibit the kind of uh, engagement and relationships and the kind of, uh, you know, money that we see being provided to these justices by way of perks like private jets and fishing lodges in Alaska. So if the court won't police itself, please, Democrats, the next time we are in control of both the House and the Senate and the White House, don't sleep on the Supreme Court. They're making decisions about the most important aspects of our lives, from whether we have to be forced to remain pregnant, whether our kids can get a fair shake 
as being considered for college admissions, all of these are decisions that will end up before the Supreme Court. So we need a court that we can count on. We need a court that we can trust. And we definitely don't need Supreme Court justices with sugar daddies. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Okay, we are back, and there is a ton of news happening and my expert contributors are here to help us break it all down. Uh, professor Niambi Card is here. Niambi is a professor at the University of Maryland and Jamar is here. Hello, Jamar. Jamar Brown, he is a democratic strategist. I want to start with you, Jamar. Joe Biden, he loves his family so much. And now his son, his youngest son, who's got a terrible drug addiction that he's battling, uh, has to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges. How difficult is this going to be for Biden on the campaign trail? Well, absolutely. I think it's a difficult situation and a challenging situation, you know, because the Republicans have been attacking Hunter Biden for a number of years um, as a sore point to attack President Biden, quite frankly. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, yes, it is very challenging. Um, But, you know, however, you know, I think that, you know, the just court of justice will play out. And I think that we will continue to see the hypocrisy uh, from Republicans not holding their own accountable while trying to point the finger at the other party and point the finger at other people. And so that's what you'll continue to see. They'll continue to attack Joe Biden's family at hopes of trying to defeat him in the next election. What do you think he should do in terms of responding to questions about it? He's very defensive about his son. He doesn't really like anybody talking about him. Uh, Professor Carter, do you think he should lean into the addiction or should he just uh, continue with, you know, I made a comment and I'm not going any further? I mean, I think that's probably going to be the best course of action because I think anything he says will be used in some way that's untoward. And really, I mean, I think the actions that he's shown over the last few months or years, really, as this case has sort of winded through, was leaving the Trump appointee in charge of this case, in charge of the case. So there could be no sort of accusations that he was trying to shield his son from any kind of penalty or any kind of consequences for his actions. So, I mean, I think you say you know, a statement and you leave it at that. I think that's the only thing that we would expect of any reasonable person. It's harder when you're the president, but I think most people who are parents um, understand that. And even people who have loved ones who are struggling with addiction, I think that's a very American problem. I don't think that's unique to any anyone. And I think his openness about that, Hunter Biden's openness about that, have probably is probably part of the reason why he's been able to say so little because I think most people recognize the, the depths of, of his son's addiction and, and the many difficulties the Biden family is, has encountered. Um, and this is just another one of those, but I don't think there's any winning here per se for Biden on this issue, other than to say, you know, my son is an adult, it's being, you know, worked out and, you know, this is where we are. Yeah, there's so many uh, really unfortunate parts about this story. One being the charges that he uh, are facing, that he has to plead guilty to, are such non-issues. How many people 
would find themselves prosecuted for not paying taxes. That's typically a collection matter handled by the IRS, possibly a civil matter involving the IRS. But we don't go around typically criminally prosecuting people for not paying their taxes. And then this this gun charge of lying about not using drugs to get a permit to buy a gun or to, to purchase a gun. Again, that statute is designed to prevent criminals from having access to firearms. I could see prosecuting someone for that if they lied and then that firearm ends up, you know, in a, a crime situation, ends up being used in a burglary or a murder or some kind of assault. But Unfortunately, Hunter Biden is is the sacrificial lamb here. They couldn't find anything as it relates to these so-called $5 million bribes or these other outlandish allegations made by the Republicans. So they land on these charges that the typical American person would never. I don't know about y'all, but I know a whole lot of people don't pay their taxes and they don't pay them on time <laughs> and they've never been criminally prosecuted. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I, 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 my heart goes out to Hunter Biden. He had to be charged with something. I guess the Trump, you know, appointed prosecutor had to come up with something to give red meat to the base. Uh, and then, you know, let's talk about Jamar, uh, Jared Kushner and $2 billion. So all of this focus on Hunter Biden and, you know, whether he didn't pay his taxes, which now are paid, and leveraging the vice president, and that's his dad when he was the vice president, Mm -hmm. Eric Kushner left the White House a legit billionaire because he leveraged the White House. He leveraged his position in the Trump White House. And why aren't the Democrats out screaming from the rooftop about that $2 billion he's getting from a Middle Eastern country? Well, we know the Republicans and specifically the Trump family have gone by do as I say, not as I do. Uh, But, you know, to your point, Ariva, I think the piece about Donald Trump when it comes to Democrats, it's so much to talk about with Donald Trump between him, between his family, et cetera. But, you know, also, too, we've noticed, especially with Joe Biden, who has branded himself as a family guy. Right. I want to be a strong dad. I want to protect my children, not really go after somebody else and their children, knowing that, you know, there's potential issues. You know, for example, we just talked about. And so. Yeah, I think it's a tipping scale for, you know, Joe Biden when, you know, there's some things going on, unfortunately, you know, with his family, too. And so I think that that's the balance that you see. You can't go so much after somebody else. It's almost like you can't throw a stone at my but house. But Jamar, and... they took the gloves off. Oh. So, you know, I, I hear you. I, if, mm-hmm. if the rule's going to be, I don't mess with your family, you don't mess with my family. But those rules are off the table. Trump Absolutely. is coming for mm-hmm. his son. So once you come from my son, should Biden do the Mike Pence? You can try to kill me and my wife and my whole family. And I say, you know, no harm, no foul. Is that the Biden strategy that you're proposing? Well, look, the Biden strategy and the Jamar Democratic political strategy might be two different things now. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it almost is, especially when you're dealing with somebody like a Donald Trump. It's they came after me. I'm going after you. Joe Biden doesn't operate in that way, in that same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, you can't change who he is. And fundamentally, as you said, he, he, he uh, you know, remembers politics when it was civilized, right? When you didn't go after somebody's wife or their children, you kept it about the issues and maybe about the candidate, him or herself. But I tell you, uh, Professor Carter, we're in a different era. You know, Donald Trump changed the game in, in a negative way, not in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that kind of campaigning, the kind of campaigning and the kind of campaigns that Joe Biden is used to 
Uh, if that's going to get it in this era of attack, 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 they are going to pile on to Hunter Biden so much that do you think Biden is going to be able to stay in his, as Jamar said, you know, I don't go after your son. I'm a family man. I know I can't throw stones because I'm living in the glass house. I don't know if he's going to be able to maintain that posture in light of what we see coming down the, you know, on Hunter Biden. This is just day two. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, I think it worked for him in 2020 because part of what he was able to draw on was that contrast with Donald Trump, who's kind of this crude person playing at being a leader, playing at being a statesman, but is really a thug with a nice suit. And so I think what he's doing is still trying to show, right, like we're going to let policy and politics we're going to let policy and what we've done, our accomplishments speak for themselves and put the, the politics and all of this as a, aside. I think the problem here is probably going to be more for Republicans than for Joe Biden, because the Republicans have shown that this politics of nastiness can work, but it also turns people off. And so while it may you know pay some dividends, I do think the party is looking at what its long-term prospects are. And if all you keep giving people is nastiness and mudslinging, but you have not delivered on policy. You've not provided Medicaid expansion in places where it really matters. You're not providing health care in places where people really want it. I think it becomes more difficult for this kind of politics to work because it's one thing if you're doing this kind of stuff and we're getting stuff on the other end of it. But if all we're getting is mudslinging, but we're getting gridlock. We're not getting anything that the citizens actually want. I think the bigger issue is going to be on their end because Joe Biden is a known quantity. We know what he's going to do. And if he is going to sling mud, he's never going to do it himself. That's what you had the surrogates do. So they can say the things that you can't say. and You can still look above the fray. Well, I don't think, uh, Professor Carter or Jamar, that uh, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert got the memo that people want their congresspeople to do something substantive <laughs> while in office and not just sling mud. How are you going to impeach somebody or introduce articles of impeachment because you don't like the way they handle immigration policy or the border. If that's grounds, Jamar, for impeachment, every president that gets elected Mm -hmm. might as well get ready for their impeachment trial because somebody's going to be critical of how you execute on your duties. They're not saying Joe Biden committed a crime. They're not saying he, uh, you know, in any way violated any confidential secrets of the country or that he engaged in espionage or anything. Lauren just said, look, I don't like how you're handling the border. I don't like your immigration policy. So let's take up the people's time. Let's take up Congress's precious time and have a vote to impeach Joe Biden. How is this so ridiculous that it is likely to backfire? Or is this what the base wants Lauren Boebert to do while she's in Congress? Uh, you think about that. You know, when we come forward, we're going to get your response to Lauren Boebert's uh, tactics and also talk about these test scores. Uh, Professor Carter, our students are failing and we're about to get a ruling from the Supreme Court that make may make it can make it even more difficult for students of color to get admitted into some of the top universities. Uh, all of this suggesting we have an education and a literacy crisis in this country. And I want to know what are we going to do about it? when we come forward, right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. There's no time like the present.
present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and you are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time. I'm your host, Ariva Martin. We are tracking today's trending news and I have two brilliant contributors joining me. Dr. Niambi Carter, who's a professor at the University of Maryland, and Jamar Brown. He's a Democratic strategist and worked uh, in the Democratic Party in Texas. All right, uh, Jamar, go ahead. You, you were about to give me your take on good old Lauren. So what's going on with Lauren? Well, Lauren and so many like Lauren, um, they <laughs> don't believe in our democracy in the same way. They want democracy to work that only advantages people who are like them. Uh, so when they think of bringing things such as uh, censures and articles of impeachment, uh, especially around issues of immigration and the border, we've never done Im- impeachment on policy issues. We've never indicted people through these kind of constitutional methods um, in that way. And so they're doing it to placate to their base, but it's extremely dangerous for how government functions because, as we've said before, we're not getting any deliverables out of it. Nothing's going to happen. We're not bettering people's lives in a meaningful way. But that's not why they're there. They're there to placate to their base. And that's exactly what she's doing. Yeah, we're talking about Congresswoman, not just Lauren, but Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, a Republican congresswoman from Colorado, sent to Congress to represent her uh, a district in Colorado, to represent uh, you know, constituents who need services, who need the federal government to work in a way that benefits and improves their lives, that uh, uplifts them. And instead, she's wasting her time. She's wasting the time of our Congress voting on, uh, you know, articles of impeachment over, as Jamar said, policy issues, execution of policy issues that are within the her view of the president of the United States. It would be like the Democrats trying to impeach Trump for putting kids in cages at the border. And to the extent anybody would be impeached for a policy decision, that surely is one of them because it was so inhumane. But you didn't Mm -hmm. see Democrats wasting uh, time, even though Trump is twice impeached. But he was impeached uh, for reasons not having anything to do with how he executed on policy, but because of his betrayal uh, of you know the U.S. government and his efforts to undermine our democracy. So I don't know. I hope Lauren does get the message that she was sent there to do a job and introducing these bogus articles of impeachment is so far removed from doing any job that her constituents could have imagined that, that she would be doing there. Uh, Professor Carter, we got to talk about these abysmal scores, performances of our 13-year-olds, the lowest in decades, test scores released from the National Assessment of Educational Progress. This is the gold standard testing agency. And the reality is 13-year-olds are really behind academically. And we know that if you are behind at 13, it's not likely that you are going to catch up. And particularly when we talk about black kids, uh, once they fall behind, even at much younger ages, it's almost impossible for them to catch up. What is going on uh, with our kids and reading and math proficiency? Well, I think one of the things we have to remember, these were young kids when the pandemic started. So they're 13 now, they're about 10 then. And so there are lots of things happening, probably emotionally and otherwise, that we didn't address 
right? We just gave everybody a laptop and did online learning and assumed that would be okay. But we've also seen concomitant with these sort of lower uh, test scores, more absenteeism, which we know leads to lower test scores. We've seen that there are fewer people who read for pleasure. I know as a kid, part of the reason that I did semi-decent in schools because there was always something to read in my house, whether it's a newspaper, a magazine, anything. I encourage my students now to read. That's how you increase your vocabulary, your comprehension, all the things that we know set kids up for success for later things like the SAT, for their, for their preparedness, right, for graduating from high school and college. So I think we have to talk about not just sort of why these kids aren't doing well, but what are we not doing as the adults that are surrounding these kids? And think about perhaps wraparound services. I know people don't like to talk about year-round schooling, but given <laughs> the fact that these students' scores were already in decline before the pandemic and then just sort of went over a cliff, I think that's something we might have to revisit, along with better teacher compensation, of course. But these kids clearly need additional services, and it's not just in the form of more technology. These kids have a lot of technology at their fingertips, whether it be a phone or be a computer or video games or something. But we have to figure out a way to reach these young people where they are. And if we're going to keep doing the same things, that might be a good indication that we're not going to get different outcomes, that it might be time to ramp up um, the services for these young people who so clearly need them. And they're not just academic services, right? They're also probably mental and emotional services that go along with that, because we know this is a systemic issue. It's not just about taking this one test. It's other things that are happening with these young people. I'm so glad you mentioned growing up and having access to books and reading. Uh, that's how I grew up. One of the first books I remember reading, uh, my grandmother giving to me was Little Women. Read that book from cover to cover. Uh, grew up with my kids, you know, starting going to the library when, you know, yes. that was a cool thing to do. And they had they had reading time. I went to my daughter, who's, uh, you know, so no shade, Morgan Martin, went <laughs> to my daughter's <laughs> apartment in New York about a month ago. And the girl didn't have any books. I bought her a bookcase with, you know, furnishing a brand new uh, one bedroom apartment that she had. And I'm like, Morgan, where are the books for the bookshop? She's like, sis or Reva, whatever little attitude she was having. Uh, and she showed me her iPad. So she's in law school. So, you know, when you're in law school, in my day in law school, you had tons and tons of books. Now law school, what I imagine, uh, Dr. Carter, graduate school is all on an iPad you don't buy those expensive two, three hundred dollar books and you don't carry them around. You know, part of that makes sense. But you know, I would have been really worried if I didn't know that she had a strong foundation in, in reading and that she is a reader and that she, you know, is in law school. But that that really kind of bothered me. I, I went home, I was like, what is up with these people? Like, where are the books, girl? <laughs> so. But it is a different time. I mean, digital books are a thing. I'm of I was the same. I went to the library. I had to do book reports for my parents mm -hmm. at the time. I had to do all of those things, right? And you sound like an old fogey, but the fact of the matter is a lot of people do access reading material via their phone, via their iPads, or something like that. It's easier. It's just the way that they live now. But I do think. Can we think about ways that we can turn those tools into learning tools as well? Because, I mean, look, telling kids to start reading 
If you haven't had a culture of reading, I don't know what's going to happen immediately. But you can foster reading where people are. Technology, I think it would be weird, too, to come in a house with no books. But I'm like, people can store hundreds of books on their phone. On their they can. They can. But I wonder, Jamar, you know, I'm around a lot of uh, Gen Z Mm-hmm. Well, Gen Zers, I'm around a lot of millennials, and I can't think of a day where I ever looked over on somebody's phone and they were reading a book. I can think of all the TikTok videos they were watching. <laughs> I can think of all the, you know, Instagram videos that they were watching, all the pictures mm-hmm. that they were editing to post on Instagram. But I just don't see folks in mass using their phones to read books. So the question is, how do we reverse this. And you're right, Professor Carter, there, there's so much that needs to happen around mental health and emotional support that our kids need because of the pandemic. They've been through a lot. So we we have to be sensitive to that. But we are just in an era, though, where I think reading and, and doing well in school is emphasized clearly in some households. But I'm not sure it's being emphasized enough across the board for those kids who, you know, maybe don't have that kind of familiar support that you and I just described having growing up. Uh, What do you think about this, Jamar? Yeah, and I mean, I'm similar as well. I mean, we would go to the library. My grandmother was a librarian. Um, So she always made sure we went to the library or she could bring books home, you know, for us to read and, you know, those sort of things. So I'm similar to y'all, you know, where (laughs) I like to have the book and highlight and analyze and, and do the thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, I definitely think that people have leaned more into technology, as uh, Dr. Carter said, especially around the pandemic. But, you know, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, people think that those things could be convenient. But I just think it's a little bit different when you you pick up a book. But I think the thing is, is that what you all are talking about is that community. It wasn't just the book. It was, you know, giving a report to the teacher. It was reading in class together. It was reading in the library. It was joining book clubs, right? It was doing homework with your classmates. Now that we're out of the pandemic, according to our president, right, now how do we recreate those community norms and those community type of events and and scenes? And so that's what I think it's going to absolutely take. And, And then challenging people to say, you know, hey, pick up a book. And let's read these chapters. Let's ask questions of each other. Let's build conversation. And let's do those sort of things. So I think that's so those are some steps we could take to really move back to some of that, but also give people a sense of community and also a sense of building skill while they're in community. Yeah, we got to figure out how do we get, you know, young minds inquisitive about things. You know, books can take you places that even, you know, you may not be able to go because of your finances or whatever, but that's what books do. They they give you an opportunity to explore the world uh, without leaving home. When we come forward, I want to talk about this much anticipated affirmative action decision that is going to come down uh, from the Supreme Court any day now. They go on summer break on Friday, June 30th. So we are counting down the days before we learn how the Supreme Court is going to rule on affirmative action and what that will mean for kids as we talk about getting kids more engaged in reading and math. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We have some breaking news talking about Republicans using their power to do everything but the people's business. 
Uh, along a party vote, Republicans have voted to formally censor California Congressman Adam B. Schiff. Uh, they did this just this afternoon. They censored him over his role of investigating former President Donald Trump, uh, the first in what could be a series of votes seeking to punish those whom Republicans deem uh, as their enemies. And in uh, again, to make this shameful act even more uh, shameful, Lauren Boebert, who <laughs> I, we talked about earlier, who wants to impeach Joe Biden, Marjorie Taylor Greene is accusing her of stealing her thunder because Marjorie Taylor Greene has been, you know, demanding that there be articles of impeachment brought against the FBI director, Christopher Wray. So there seems to be now this uh, race between Republicans to impeach Democrats and fighting over who gets to the finish line first. Kevin McCarthy, Jamar, has a mess on his hands. He absolutely does. But those are the deals he cut to be the speaker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what you're seeing now is he lessened the rules. He shifted the rules to accommodate folks in the quote-unquote Freedom Caucus so that some of them would vote for him as speaker. And even folks like Lauren Borbard still didn't vote for him at the end of the day. Uh, and so when they're utilizing these rules in this way to censor not people who've done anything wrong, but people who didn't do what they thought that they should do. Um, you're talking about someone who led an investigation uh, in the Intelligence Committee when the president of the United States was working with a foreign country to go against a, a enemy. Right. Uh, those are things that are impeachable. Those are things that are uh, not of standing of the president or any elected official, quite frankly. And so at the end of the day, we're seeing this as punishment. But Speaker McCarthy created this environment in order to hold power for himself. But he lessened his own power. Now they're emboldened to do this and they're manipulating government systems and processes to uh, placate and to appease their base. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Professor Carter, the original censor motion against shift included a $16 million fine and an ethics investigation into him. They were able to remove the fine and apparently the investigation, but they went forward with Kevin McCarthy supporting it, the censure of shift. But these are the same people that won't condemn Donald Trump from being federally indicted on a 37 count indictment on the mishandling of some of the country's, you know, most uh, sacred secrets. So, you know, some of our most confidential uh, national security secrets that he mishandled in boxes, put them in boxes by the toilet. These folks have nothing to say about that, but they move forward with this censure. Now, it won't remove Adam Schiff for office. It doesn't really change his status, but it is an embarrassment. They've only censored about 24 people in the whole history of the Congress. Uh, so it's not something, a mark that someone wants by their name, particularly when they've done nothing wrong. But you have Nancy, I'm sorry, you have Marjorie Taylor <laughs> Green saying, Lauren, you stole my plate, girl. So they're they about to duke it out. Well, these are not serious people. Students. You know, I will say this and I will say this oh, again. These are Lord. not serious people. And this is not a political party. They're basically a bunch of self-righteous um, uh, seekers, right, of re-election. That's all these people are. This is why they can't coordinate. This is why they can't actually decide on what they want to do. And I think Jamar is exactly right. This shows a failure of leadership 
on the part of Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy was willing to give away the store so he could get the seat. And now you have chaos. I mean, at least on something like impeachment, you would expect to have a party in lockstep. And you have instead reports of Marjorie Taylor Greene allegedly calling Lauren Boebert the B word on the floor, right? And then this stuff with Adam Schiff, I actually think this is going to backfire on Republicans because Schiff is about to fundraise like heck off of this intro <laughs> because all it is is a formal denouncement of your activities. But all he's going to say is what you just said. These people are so out of touch with the truth. They don't want you to hear how terrible it was. It was his duty to safeguard some of this material. They want everything out of the public, but that's only because they were trying to figure out a defense to mount from the indefensible. So these people are a shill at this point and trying to call itself a party. But everybody here is an independent operator trying to grab the brass ring and they think they're gonna do it on the coattails of Donald Trump. And the way they're gonna do it is the way Donald Trump would do it, intimidate, go after people for, I don't know, doing their job. I mean, they act like oversight is not something that this branch is expressly there to do. So I think they're going to actually overplay their hand like they've done in the States in some cases. And they're going to see Adam Schiff fundraise like crazy because of this act. And all they're talking about, oh, about what's right. And this man is telling lies. Is he telling lies? Because this person that we've seen, Donald Trump, has been indicted twice and lots of people around him have already gone to prison. Something stinks here. And these people are so used to sitting in it, they can't even smell it anymore. And that's the real sad uh, part about this. And listen, our democracy is as fragile as it's ever been. And we cannot assume that there will always be another election because if these people have their way, they're going to try to take away most of our rights so that they can stay in power. And I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, but if we look at what's happening around voting rights, if we look at how they're trying to intimidate their colleagues in the body, um, these people are taking everything out of these, these sort of um, autocratic playbooks and trying to, to pass that off as a democracy. And this, I think, is just one more a thing that we can point to to show how deeply unserious these people are about the business of governing. Well, we know Republicans have not been a governing party in a long time. And this is just more exhibits, more examples of how they waste uh, our time. They waste the people's time. And they're, they're really uh, betraying the constituents that have voted for them and have sent them to Congress to do the people's business. They're doing everything but the people's business. Uh, real quickly, Jamar, what are you expecting from the Supreme Court when they hand down this much-anticipated decision on affirmative action? Yes, and as you mentioned, we are getting to the end of this uh, Supreme Court before they go to recess. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, people are anticipating that they will roll back a lot of race conscious programs. Um, and so many people, you know, view education as a tool of equity, as a tool of opportunity, as a tool that opens doors, that allow people to go into institutions and into spaces that otherwise we would not have been able to walk into. I ended up going to a PWI myself on a full ride scholarship. Um, so I'm a product of knowing that uh, education opened a door for me. Education was a breaker of poverty in my family um, across generations. Um, and that it's going to really inhibit what the workforce begins to look like. It's going to really inhibit people's access to income and access to other opportunities 
the diversity in the classroom, right, where people can learn different perspectives and learn to think critically uh, because they can analyze through different perspectives. All of that is at stake with this Supreme Court decision. And so we'll see what happens. Uh, but we've got to watch closely and make sure we do that. And then the last thing I'll say is outside of the Supreme Court, look at what several states are doing. You go to Florida, you go to Texas. They're eliminating DEI programs through the state governments right now. Uh, and that's in addition to what potentially will happen in this case. And so we're only taking the country backward um, if it goes that these programs are eliminated. Yeah, not very hopeful that the Supreme Court is going to uh, you know, show us any profiles and courage, expect the Supreme Court to rule that it's unconstitutional for uh, higher learning institutions, academic institutions to use race as a factor, not the sole factor, but a factor in determining college admissions. However, we're going to have to read the fine print very carefully. You're going to have to read mm -hmm. the reasoning because my intuition tells me that this is not going to be the last time that the issue of use of affirmative action policies is before this Supreme Court. And I'm also convinced that schools like Harvard, they are Harvard for a reason. They're going to figure out how to have diverse uh, classes and how to give individuals who are from disadvantaged backgrounds an opportunity uh, at higher learning at some of these Ivy Leagues and, and other major institutions. Thank you so much, Jamar. We are out of time. Jamar Brown, former executive director of the Texas Democratic Party and Professor Niambi Carter, professor at the University of Maryland. Uh, your insights are invaluable. Come back again real soon when we come forward more of Ariva Martin in real time. And we talk about that Minneapolis Police Department scathing report from the Department of Justice. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. Because my plan from Verizon is the kind of control we all deserve. Get exactly what you want. Only pay for what you need. Get my plan at your Verizon store today. This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. Remember Francis Tiafo, the brother who made it to the U.S. Open semifinals in November? Tiafo is now ranked among the top 10 male tennis players in the world. The 25-year-old Tiafo reached the top 10 for the first time in his young career. Tiafo climbed to 10th after winning the Stuttgart Open in Germany over the weekend. He's only the third African-American to be ranked in the top 10. The distinguished list includes the legendary Arthur Ashe and James Blake. Tiafo is one of only two American men currently ranked in the top 10. Taylor Fritz is eighth. Venus Williams received a wildcard invitation to play in this year's Wimbledon. This would be Venus's 24th Wimbledon appearance. She's won the title five times. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. More news, opinions, and conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. We boldly go where no man has gone before. Boldly taking talk radio where it has never gone before. New vistas. New voices. New views. New visions. New victories. We're KBLA Talk 1580, and we're taking public media black. Black, black, black. <clears throat> Sometime in the next 10 days, the Supreme Court is expected to tightly restrict or ban race-based affirmative action in college admissions. The ruling could come as soon as tomorrow or as late as Friday, June 30th, before the, the justices leave for their summer break. Hunter Biden's agreement on Tuesday to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax crimes capped a five-year investigation without allegations of wrongdoing by the president or presumably prison time for his youngest son. 
But on the other hand, it put Hunter once again in the crosshairs of Mr. Biden's adversaries who instantly complained that the wayward son got off too easy. A federal judge in Arkansas on Tuesday struck down the state's law forbidding medical treatments for children and teenagers seeking gender transitions, blocking what had been the first in a wave of such measures championed by conservative lawmakers across the country. The decision was hailed as a significant victory for the LGBTQ community, delivering a dose of certainty for transgender youth in Arkansas who had worried for nearly two years about losing access to puberty blockers and hormones. Well, the New York State Legislature gave final approval yesterday to legislation that provides legal protection for New York doctors to prescribe and send abortion pills to patients in states that have outlawed abortion. The measure, along with similar new laws in several other states controlled by Democrats, could significantly expand medication abortion access by allowing more patients in states that restrict abortion to end pregnancies at home without traveling to states where abortion is legal. Well, the math and reading performance of 13-year-olds in the United States has hit the lowest level in decades. Now, this is according to test scores released today from the National Assessment of Educational Progress. This is the gold standard federal exam. Now, the last time performance was this low for 13-year-olds was in 1990. Representative Lauren Boebert introduced articles of impeachment yesterday against Joe Biden. And today, the House censored Adam Schiff. You are listening <coughs> to Ariva Martin in real time. And I'm your host, Ariva Martin coughing a little, uh, but this is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two, and in this hour, we go behind the headlines and we dig deep on those stories that everybody is talking about. And unless you've been under a rock, you have probably heard that the Department of Justice wrapped up its two-year investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department. Now, they were asked to go into this police department, after we all witnessed George Floyd brutally murdered before our very eyes uh, in May of 2020. Now, some would say the request for the Department of Justice to go into that police department happened as much as a decade before George Floyd's brutal murder. But it was after his murder where we saw the Justice Department start to look into not only the Minneapolis Police Department, but other police departments around the country. Uh, police departments where activists have said there's a history of unconstitutional policing, uh, racial profiling, and excessive force mostly aimed at people of color. Now, the Department of Justice announced uh, its findings as it relates to that Minneapolis Police Department almost a week ago, a little less than a week ago, and it documented the uh, just abuses inside that department. The, de the report was actually far worse than I think any of us had anticipated. The report involved interviews with more than 2,000 people and described a police agency that's rife, and, and I do mean that seriously, rife with excessive force, racial profiling, lack of accountability, military-style training, and as we you know, all witness, again, police officers that 
were employed, like Derek Chauvin, uh, you know, he was not alone. Derek Chauvin was not a lone actor. He was uh, representative of so many of the officers employed by that police department. The report is 89 pages long. Uh, it contains metrics that give examples of unconstitutional policing. For example, give you this one example. Uh, there's an example of a black motorist in Minneapolis. Uh, well, the report gives us examples that black motorists in Minneapolis, not one, but black folks in general who drive cars in Minneapolis are six times more likely to be pulled over for no reason than a white driver. Again, get that, that the report revealed that if you were driving a car, driving while black in Minneapolis, you were six times more likely to be pulled over uh, than your white counterpart that could be driving a car right next to you. And all of this evidence, all of these, uh, you know, these findings by the Department of Justice led the federal government to intervene and to uh, basically come up with a plan uh, called a consent decree and force this police department to agree to have a monitor placed over the police department and to have its police department uh, under the supervision of this monitor who will be appointed by a federal judge. And I don't know, this report just really struck a, a chord for me because for the last couple of years, I've been talking with activists on the ground in Minneapolis, and I've heard of some of the horrific stories that uh, activists either encountered personally or they had personal accounts of from individuals in that community. So I cannot imagine that the findings of this report came as a shock to those that have been working for criminal justice reform in Minneapolis for years. But I wanted to take this entire hour to unpack that report, to get uh, the response from one of the activists that has been literally working on this uh, now, probably more than a decade, because I think it's important when these kinds of reports to come, when they come out, we ask how the community, what does the community think? How do they feel about the findings, but more importantly, about the efforts to move forward to reform this police department? So when we come forward, I have Nakima Levy-Pounds uh, joining us. She is a civil rights attorney. She's an advocate. She's the author of JS for Justice. She also was the president of the NAACP in Minneapolis. She has been on the front lines of many of the protests, movements, and activations that occurred in that city over the last uh, several years. So I'm excited to have Nakima join us to help us understand what this report means, how it landed with the community, and what are people in Minneapolis thinking about uh, reform and how reform is possible in a department that is, by all accounts, pretty rotten to the core. Uh, stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, I am back and I'm talking in this hour with Nakia, Nakima, I'm sorry, Nakima Levy Pound. She's a civil rights attorney, advocate, and author of Jays for Justice. She is uh, also the former NAACP 
president in Minneapolis. Uh, Nakima, I want to start with just the initial responses from folks on the ground when this scathing report was released. And I watched that press conference standing there with uh, Merrick Garland, uh, members from the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, the mayor of Minneapolis and other city officials. Tell us what the response of activists were when the report's findings were read out. Well, we had our own community response um, that took place about 15 minutes after the end of the DOJ's press conference. So we had activists and organizers and community members standing up and reacting to what we heard. And of course, you know that we were not surprised by the information that was brought forward by the Department of Justice. Actually, after George Floyd was killed, we once again, for the umpteenth time, called upon the Department of Justice to investigate the Minneapolis Police Department. Back in the day, there was actually a mediated agreement between the community and the Department of Justice um, regarding the Minneapolis Police Department. And there was never really any accountability. And so we knew that it would take something a little bit stronger than what had happened before in order for city officials in Minneapolis to get the message that this is a serious issue, that the Minneapolis Police Department is out of control and it's time for it to be overhauled. Yeah, you know, I just want to read some of the examples that are cited in the report that led to the conclusion that this department needed a complete overhaul. Uh, For example, on page 44, here's an excerpt from that page. It says, during a May 2020 protest following the murder of George Floyd, a lieutenant was caught on camera expressing racist assumptions about Black people. And this is the quote, I love to scatter them, but it's time to effing put people in jail and just prove the mayor wrong about his white supremacists from out of state. Now, although this group probably is predominantly white because there's not looting and fires, another officer agreed. The report notes that the lieutenant oversaw the department's training in use of force. Now, obviously, this is a position where he had enormous influence. So this is a lieutenant overseeing the use of force training, saying, I'd love to scatter him, but it's time to effing put people in jail and basically prove the mayor wrong about white supremacists coming in from out of state. The, the racist part is him to say, well, they probably are white because it's not looting and fires. The implication being they would be black if it was looting and fires. You know, when you read an example like that, you know, what is the, res- the what is the response of the community to that kind of comment from a lieutenant that's over the use of force training? Again, unfortunately, Ariva, we are not surprised. When you think back to what happened on May 25th of 2020 when George Floyd was killed, um, as you may recall, we've had you and I have had this conversation about what happened that day where someone from the community, a woman whose husband had been killed by police, posted that Minneapolis police had killed someone, that they had choked him or crushed his throat or something like that. I looked online, I saw nothing. So then I called the chief of Minneapolis police at that time, um, Madeira Arredondo, and I asked him if Minneapolis police had killed someone. His response was no. Someone had been killed as a result of a medical emergency 
but MPD didn't kill that person. Now, later, of course, when we saw the video, when more information came out, we saw exactly what happened. But the reality is that there are sergeants and higher-ups in the department who intentionally concealed that information. They had no idea that it was going to blow up the way that it did. So they thought that they could manipulate the facts and information and essentially rubber stamp lies. And that's because that's what they're used to doing. That is the culture. If you recall, Derek Chauvin was actually a field training officer, despite a long history of engaging in excessive force, almost killing people, particularly a black woman who was a mother, uh, as well as a 14-year-old boy. He used a similar maneuver. How did he rise to the ranks of being a field training officer, um, a person who demonstrated authority over other officers with that kind of record? So that goes to show this is a part of the culture within the Minneapolis Police Department, and they've been allowed to get away with this kind of conduct for years. Yeah, some of these examples, uh, Nakima, are just shocking. Here, here's another one. And I just want to go through these examples because we we have heard pushback from Republicans. We know under Donald Trump's administration, he pretty much shut down the Civil Rights Division, uh, particularly these kinds of investigations where uh, the DOJ would go into police departments that had a history of racial profiling or use of excessive force, uh, Donald Trump said, no, our police departments are fine. Leave them alone. Give them more money. You know, applaud them back to the blue. We heard a lot of that. And then to, to know that this kind of conduct was happening in Minneapolis as folks like Donald Trump and other Republicans were saying basically hands off our police departments. Uh, here's another example. Uh, in a Minneapolis precinct station in 2019, Officers, this is a year before George Floyd uh, is murdered. This is in 2019. Officers decorated a Christmas tree with a Newport cigarette pack, malt liquor cans, and a cup from Popeye's. Super racist stuff. This is a quote from Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey lamenting to federal investigators. So he's lamenting about this conduct in this precinct. Now, at the podium on Friday, Garland highlighted a, a 2015 traffic stop involving a Somali-American teens or a group of teens. And at one point, one of the teens told an officer, you're racist, bro. And this is how the officer replied. He says, yep, and I'm proud of it. Do you remember what happened in Black Hawk Down when we killed a bunch of you folk? I'm proud of that. We didn't finish the job over there. If we had, you guys wouldn't be over here right now. And this is a police officer ta talking to a Somali teenager, telling him, I'm a racist and proud of it. I wish we had killed all of you talking about Somali Somalians, because if we had, you wouldn't be over here right now. Uh, this is, so what this tells us, Nakima, and uh, the report, highlights it. It wasn't just animus and racial profiling as it relates to African-Americans. It was also Native Americans. Why were they the subject of the ire? We know why Black folks are hated in this country. Why were Native Americans, if you know, targeted by the Minneapolis Police Department? Well, I think they were targeted for similar reasons as African-Americans, uh, being seen as disposable, 
um, thinking about our our heritage and the way that we have been stereotyped, the way that we've been denigrated. And in uh, the city of Minneapolis, we actually have a relatively large Native American population. And I moved here in 2003, and I remember hearing the stories about Minneapolis police officers would actually, um, instead of arresting uh, Native American people um, at the outset, they would actually put them in the back of a, the trunk of their squad car and drive around with them for hours. And these are stories that people mm. would tell as if it wasn't a big deal that, hey, this is just a part of it. So Native Americans have definitely been targeted um, with regard to traffic stops, with regard to excessive force and abuse in a very similar way as African-Americans. I think the difference is that we we have a larger population um, of Black mm -hmm. folks in Minneapolis. So we've had, um, you know, a disproportionate amount of contact with the Minneapolis Police Department, but the abuse and the mistreatment is very similar. Now, the in incident you, you talked about earlier with regard to the Christmas tree, in the community, we call that the racist Christmas tree incident. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, that incident took place at the 4th Precinct Police Station, which is in North Minneapolis, which is a predominantly Black community. And that particular precinct was the site of a major uprising that happened in 2015, November 2015, after a young Black man, 24 years old, unarmed, was shot in the head at point-blank range mm -hmm. by Minneapolis police officers um, after he was just, he was literally just standing at the back of an ambulance checking on a friend. And within 61 seconds of the officers showing up on the scene, they killed him. They were not held accountable at all. So we held an 18 day protest out in the freezing cold, standing up for justice for Jamar. And it was what, maybe a year or so later that this other, um, in incident happened with the racist Christmas tree. And at the time, it may have been a couple of years, but at the time, the the mayor and the chief actually fired those officers who were involved and they went through arbitration. And I believe at least one of those officers got their job back. So that's wow. probably what the mayor had been lamenting, because one of the complaints we hear when we're saying that these officers need to be held accountable, they need to be fired, is that when they go through arbitration, they might get their jobs back. And that has happened, unfortunately, on some occasions, not all, but that has right. been the case. So, so like in the streets, what do we say? The whole damn system is guilty as hell. And this is a part of what that represents. How did you all learn about the Christmas tree incident? Obviously, the, the public, we are just learning about it because of the scathing report from the DOJ. But how did the racist Christmas tree incident, you know, get disseminated uh, to folks in the community? We believe that someone inside the department who found the tree to be offensive leaked it. And so they actually leaked it to activists. And when we saw it, we immediately took action. Um, we wrote a press release. We called upon those officers to be fired. And they were. Um, and when we found out, you read off some of the contents. There were some additional ones as well. But we were like, we knew that this was about targeting the Black community and stereotyping folks. Um, and making fun of folks around Christmas time. So what we actually wound up doing was having a community response once again. We we had a Christmas tree delivered to the front of the precinct 
And then we called everybody in the community who wanted to come out. We had hot chocolate. We had music playing. We brought decorations. And we decorated the Christmas tree the right way in front wow. of the 4th Precinct Police Station. And the chief allowed it to stay up throughout the holiday season. So as wow. you can see, as these incidents happen and we find out about them, there's always some kind of community response or pushback to what's going on. So uh, one of the other incidents, and this was talked about at that press conference, I found this one to be just, I, I can't even say more appalling than the ones that we've already talked about because each one of them is so egregious that, you know, I'm kind of out of adjectives in trying to even describe these incidents. But the the incident where the woman is being sexually assaulted in an alley and she's trying to run for help, she's she's running for help, and she taps on the window of a police officer and he says he's quote unquote spooked and he shoots and kills the woman who's being sexually assaulted. Well, she was, so th that case is Justine Rusechek Damon. That happened in, I think, July of 2017. She wasn't actually being sexually assaulted. She lived in that neighborhood, which is a white affluent neighborhood in Southwest Minneapolis. She called 911 because she thought she heard a oh. woman being sexually assaulted in the alley behind her house. So what happened was that she called 911, the police showed up, she went outside and apparently tapped on the vehicle and the officer who was a black um, Muslim Somali officer thought they were being ambushed and he fired his weapon across his partner thinking he was protecting them. But he didn't assess the threat. There was no threat. This was an innocent, unarmed woman who was, I guess, trying to get the attention be of the good Samaritan. Be a good Samaritan. Be a good Samaritan. And they, he shot her once in the abdomen. And he actually wound up being the first officer in recent history that was actually convicted for killing someone. But we felt that they used him as a sacrificial lamb because most of the killer cops were white and they intentionally killed people. Whereas this was a black uh, Somali officer and it was likely an accident. Although that doesn't excuse what happened in any way. Yeah, I think it just goes to the issue of, of the poor training, the, the, you know, the officers that are on the street using levels of force that are unjustified. When we come forward, Nakeem, I want to talk about the police chief, the mayor and the city council, because obviously nothing will change with this police department unless it comes from the top, the top brass, the leadership of this police department. I know there's been a change with respect to who the chief is now versus who the chief was when George Floyd was murdered. Stay with us, KBL, a talk 1580. More with Nakima Levy-Pound uh, after some news, sports, and traffic. Arriva time is the right time. More of Arriva Martin in real time when we come forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And in this second hour of Ariva Martin in real time, I'm talking with Nakima Levy Armstrong. She is a civil rights attorney. She's a former NAACP president in Minneapolis, and she is an advocate that has been in those streets uh, in Minneapolis leading some of the protests against police brutality and against what we now know is a pretty corrupt police department. Uh, we've been going deep on this DOJ report 
uh, DOJ went into the Minneapolis Police Department after getting many, many requests uh, from advocates, from its citizens who complained about police misconduct, uh, racial profiling, and excessive force that was being used against Blacks and Native Americans in that city. Now, the basic takeaway from the DOJ report is that the Minneapolis Police Department violated the first, which is the right to free speech, and fourth, which is uh, the right not to be illegally searched, uh, that the police department violated the First and Fourth Amendment rights systemically, and especially in terms of its application of use of force against people of color. Now, in reaching that conclusion, it's important to understand uh, that the department's report, the Department of Justice's report, focuses on use of excessive force. It did look at other issues such as police stops and what is often called racial profiling, but most of the report examined the racial disparities in terms of use of force. And also, this, uh, we know the Supreme Court has said that questions of use of force raise constitutional questions, defining them as Fourth Amendment search and seizure issues. Uh, Nakima, so we outlined in the first 30 minutes of the show some of the horrific incidents that the Department of Justice was able to uh, examine instances uh, of police excessive force that they you know, give examples of in this 89-page report. But I want to talk about moving forward. What is the city going to do? What is the mayor going to do? And particularly the police chief. I know you had a relationship with the former chief. It was an African-American. We all saw him. We saw him testify at Derek Chauvin's criminal trial. Uh, got to know him a little just, you know, from watching him testify. But there is a new police chief. His name is Brian O'Hara. Tell us uh, a little about Chief O'Hara and your thoughts about, is he the man to lead this kind of reform that the Justice Department is demanding be made by this police department? Well, we're still honestly trying to figure that out, Ariva. Um, Many of us are just now becoming familiar with the new police chief, Brian O'Hara. He was hired because of his work in Newark, New Jersey, where he actually oversaw uh, what was happening with their consent decree. So I believe that that's a big part of the reason why he was hired um, in Minneapolis, because not only do we have this Department of Justice consent decree, there's also a consent decree that will likely be entered in state court next month between the Minnesota Department of Human Rights and the Minneapolis Police Department. They actually conducted a 10, uh, an investigation over two years that looked back 10 years at the conduct of Minneapolis police officers. So given those two, um, I don't know if they're competing or complementary consent mm-hmm. decree, uh, that's why they hired Brian O'Hara for the job. So I think he's just becoming acclimated to Minneapolis culture, which I think is very different from many other cultures around the country. It's just a very unique place. As you know, I grew up in L.A., so I've had to learn, you know, what this culture is all about. And it definitely takes a while. So we're trying to see where does he stand at the end of the day? Is he going to rubber stamp the status quo or is he actually going to shift the culture within the Minneapolis Police Department and hold officers accountable. Right now, it's still a question mark as far as I'm concerned. 
So we know that just by having a Black police chief, a Black mayor, a Black anything doesn't mean that these issues of racial disparities and racial profiling and the use of excessive force targeted towards people of color goes away. We know that. The studies show that. Diversity matters. Representation matters. But just being Black uh, in a position of authority is not enough to you know, reform an entire police department. But with that being said, what was the community's response to moving out the Black police chief and bringing in Chief O'Hara. I, I recognize what you said about his previous experience. I think he had been in New Jersey. Uh, but, you know, did the did the community feel like it was the right time and the best thing to do to replace the Black chief with a white chief? Well, the Black chief, Madeira Arredondo, made a decision to remove his name for, from consideration for another term as chief. So he made the decision to retire. And I think everyone at that point just respected his wishes, um, given everything that had occurred. Um, and he was actually, uh, back before he was chief, he was a part of a group of, I believe, five Black officers who actually sued the Minneapolis Police Department and won because of the discrimination that they themselves experienced on the job. So I think that Many folks in the Black community would have been supportive of another term um, for Chief Arredondo, but I think people respected his wishes, again, given everything that happened. Um, but, you know, once he decided that he wasn't going to uh, remain as chief, a lot of us did push for a person from outside of the department um, becoming the new chief just because the culture was so rotten, you know, as you mentioned earlier. But let's go back to the black chief. I hear what you're saying. He was a part of five officers that sued the department. And that's not uncommon for black officers in police departments, in fire departments around this country to have their own race discrimination suit against their employer. But we can't gloss over the fact that a lot of these incidents that are outlined in this report happened on the black chief's watch while he was in that position of authority. So, you know, talk to us about what he was up against, because I assume he didn't co-sign on this craziness, you know, this targeting of Black folks and Native Americans. So was he up against a powerful police union? Was he up against career white supremacist police officers? I mean, what was going on that all of these, many of these incidents outlined in this report happened while he was in charge? I think it was a combination of things. Um, if you look at the timeline, he actually became chief right after Justine Rusechek Damon, who we talked about earlier, the white affluent woman who was killed by Minneapolis police. After she was killed, we called for the firing of the police chief at that time, um, a native woman named Janae Harto. Um, and then um, Arredondo, Chief Arredondo became the chief after that point in 2017. And I think he inherited a department that, of course, had a number of issues. We raised concerns. We actually met with the chief on numerous occasions to bring up some of the very issues that you and I are talking about right now, including uh, traffic stops. We looked at the fact, we looked at the data, and we saw that Black motorists were being pulled over significantly more than their white counterparts, and their vehicles were more likely to be searched. Well, it took us almost a year of sitting down with the chief and members of his staff to get them to actually make changes to the policy. 
I don't think it should have taken that long. I mean, the data spoke for itself, but literally we stayed at the table until finally um, he didn't agree to what we asked for, which was a moratorium on uh, police doing equipment violation traffic stops. But he did agree that officers would give people a fix-it coupon um, rather than a citation bringing them into the justice system so people could get their cars repaired for free. But I think change was was far too slow. You know, unfortunately, mm -hmm. during that time, we saw a lot of officers engaging in abusive behavior and not being disciplined at the rate and level that we thought needed to happen. But I think the fact that this department was allowed to get away with the, the, the kinds of abuses that happened for so long makes it a challenge when you're trying to rein them in. So we said many of them need to be fired. And mm -hmm. I don't know what they're waiting on, but it needed to happen under Chief Arredondo and it needs to happen now. So we come forward, uh, Nakima, want to talk about, again, what is the pathway forward? We know police morale uh, in the department is at an all-time low. We know lots of folks have retired or they have quit. And it, it could not be easy recruiting new officers to a department that has just been put on blast the way this Minneapolis Police Department has been put on blast. It couldn't be easy to recruit folks to come work for the police department that killed George Floyd uh, before our very eyes. So I can imagine all of the impediments that the department faces in trying to recruit new officers. Uh, so we want to talk about what is the pathway forward given all of these violations that have been well documented now, no hiding. It, it's you know, for the public to see, for the community to see, uh, but there has to be a way forward. When uh, we come forward, we're going to talk more with Nakiva, Nakima Levy-Armstrong right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Nakima, in this last segment, I really want to focus on the pathway forward, given, again, the, the plethora of violations that this department, Minneapolis Police Department, has engaged in over uh, seemingly years, if not decades. What is the community thinking about how to bring this police department into constitutional compliance lord have mercy <laughs> <laughs> i know that's a big old question simple but yet it's so gonna, profound it's, it's gonna take a miracle i mean that's number one but beyond that i think with these two consent decrees one at the state level and one at the federal level the hope is that that is going to be a big factor in bringing about the changes that are needed but like you said earlier Leadership really starts at the top. We need to see the mayor step up and do more in terms of using his power to hold the Minneapolis police accountable. Because the reality is that even with the recommendations by the Department of Justice, the mayor has the authority to do these things now, you know, many of these things. And he he didn't have to wait. You know, I know that they often say, well, we've already started doing all of this. Well, we heard that before when the mayor was running for re-election, claiming that he had banned no-knock warrants. And then a few months later, we have the Minneapolis police killing of 22-year-old Amir Locke, 
as a result of a botched no-knock warrant. He wasn't even a suspect and wound up um, being killed um, unnecessarily after we had already been promised that there was an end to no-knock warrants. So we have not seen um, the mayor step up in the way that he needs to and to take leadership and authority over the department. Again, the chief is still a question mark at this point just because he's so new um, to the position. And one faux pas that he made um, that just recently, you talked about um, hiring and how difficult it is. Well, one of the things that happened recently was that the new chief, for whatever reason, signed off on the hiring of a man named Tyler Timberlake. Now, this particular officer uh, came from Fairfax, Virginia, and he was caught on camera just weeks out, maybe about 10 days or so after George Floyd was killed, brutally beating a black man. Wow. Um, yeah, it, I mean, just, and it was caught on video. And he wound up being charged, but not prosecuted. Jury let him off the hook. And he had to, and the um, police department had to pay that black man, um, you know, a settlement for that abuse. But I'm thinking, with someone with that track record, how would how could they possibly get their foot in the door to become a Minneapolis police officer, given all these problems, given the culture, given the history? So we have asked the chief to fire Tyler Timberlake because it's still during his probationary period. And his response is that um, he's conducting an investigation. I'm like, listen, the videos mm. are all over the internet. What more do you need to see except the anti-Blackness, the abuse, and the kind of behavior that we don't want to see from Minneapolis police officers? So it makes many of us feel like there's huge elements of business as usual, uh, which again is why we need a state and federal intervention to begin with. I'm thinking back to right after George Floyd's murder, when we had this big movement across the country to defund police departments. Minneapolis's uh, city council voted to defund the police, and then there was a, a referendum, I guess, put on your ballot, and and you know things happened, but essentially the defunding never occurred. Has your city council turned over in substantial ways, and do you have any faith that the city council uh, might? you know, be more inclined to uh, ensure that the police department is meeting the requirements of this consent decree? Yes, our city council has turned over. I want to say at least six of them did not win re-election um, wow. after making that pledge to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department um, in, in, in 2021. And part of that was because of the fact that many of those individuals were not serious about overhauling MPD or engaging in police reform, although they had known about these issues for years. So they had not taken tangible action steps to hold MPD accountable. But suddenly when you have national news and international news and the world watching Minneapolis, they make a declaration saying they're gonna dismantle MPD. And many of us did not take them seriously. We felt that they were pandering for the cameras, pandering in the name of progressivism, and still not listening to what Black folks were asking them to do. And, and there was so much fallout after all of that happened um, in our city. We Unfortunately, we saw an increase um, in a lot of crime. In particular, we had um, chilled Black children who wound up being shot and killed as innocent bystanders. 
uh, or just being with their parents in a vehicle. I mean, just literally. Uh, and I think at least two of those three children during that time were shot in the head and maybe Ooh. even all three. It was horrific. But we could see the handwriting on the wall that once you make a declaration like that, you don't you, they didn't even have the power under the law at the time to back it up. Um, we knew all hell was going to break loose. And that's exactly what happened in the city. But meanwhile, you had black folks in the city saying this is not what we asked for. We want a professional police department. We want a police department that treats people with dignity and respect. But we have to have somebody to call if something happens in our community. And so they weren't listening even to black folks who we know are disproportionately impacted by violent crime. So when you look at all of those dynamics, you have elected leadership that gloss over the needs of black folks that have this blatant evidence in their face and still won't use their power. And so after all of that happened with that, the ballot measure that you mentioned, one of the other ballot questions that, that was um, on the agenda at that time was actually about increasing the power of the mayor. Mm. And so folks voted down that ballot measure to dis to um not necessarily to dismantle MPD, because I think at the time it became like a restructuring right. of MPD. And then uh, there would be the leadership of MPD would be the city council, 12 city council members and the mayor. So the so the chief would have had 13 bosses. And we're saying so that was this, voted down, but there was a referendum that, was that voted gave down. the mayor more power. Gave the mayor more power in the same vote. And so the mayor now actually has more authority in terms of holding the police accountable. I don't believe that the city council is going to step up and use their power. We have historically not seen that happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and even with this situation I just mentioned with Tyler Timberlake, why haven't we heard from the city council saying this is unacceptable? How are you hiring people with this track record as part of the department? What we typically hear is silence or infighting. And we're just sick and tired of it as a community. Because again, the mayor was just reelected. Do you have term limits in Minneapolis? Can he do three terms, four terms? How many terms can he do? He can do, I, I, he can do I know, at least three terms. He, I don't know if there's specific term limits. But two mayors ago, that particular mayor, R.T. Ryback, was the mayor for three terms. Mm. And this mayor, Frey, his this name is, is right? Second term, Jacob Fry. Fry. This is okay, Jacob his Fry. second term as mayor. Okay. Wow. Lots going on in Minneapolis. I'm so glad that you uh, are there. I'm glad you have your finger on the pulse of what's happening. I'm glad that uh, you are continuing to be uh, such a vocal part of that advocate advocate community because it's because of advocates and activists like you that we've even gotten to this point where, like you said, there are two uh, consent decrees or what essentially are consent decrees, both at the federal level and the state level. Uh, that's going to happen really soon. Uh, we are all watching, as you said, the eyes of the nation, the eyes of the world uh, have been on Minneapolis since George Floyd was murdered. And seeing that scathing report come out from the Department of Justice just confirmed what we all pretty much expected it to say, because there's no way a Derek Chauvin uh, was a man acting as a solo actor. He had to be part of a system uh, that allowed that kind of brutality and that kind of uh, you know excessive force to to happen, to fester, 
And sure enough, what we all expected to be, in some ways, that report confirmed even worse than what we had anticipated. But again, we're going to be hopeful that the new chief of police is going to reform this department, that the mayor is going to get the message that we can never go backwards and that this police department, that the people of Minneapolis deserve better. And they are better because you are on the grounds fighting for them. Thank you so much, Nakima Levy Armstrong, civil rights attorney, author of J is for Justice, former NAACP president in Minneapolis and uh, just advocate extraordinaire. Appreciate you sharing some time with us and helping us understand what's happening on the ground. All right, y'all, I'm out. You can follow me on all social platforms at Ariva Martin. The next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report. Stay with us right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.